The CBC presents Canadian Snapshots. Canada. Its people, its romance, its good humor and its colorful attractions caught by the lens of the radio camera as it sweeps once more across a nation's vast panorama. And an orchestra playing special music under the conductorship of Samuel Hurstenholm. is here. June, the month when the vacationist hits the trail for his summer holiday. Aye, and the bonniest trail of them all is the Cabot Trail skirting the northern shores of Cape Breton Island. the lovely waters of the Bador Lake at the village of Bedeck. Bedeck, forever sacred to the memory of that great genius and benefactor of the human race, Alexander Graham Bell. On the slopes of the beautiful hill, Ben Bray, he built his summer home, and on its summit, he directed that he and his wife be buried. When I die, lay me on the top of Ben Bray, that I may sleep forever under the blue skies of Cape Breton and hear the sound of the golden waves of Brador lapping against the shore. A secret spot, and one that has earned the worldwide fame, the yachting waters here have a continent-wide reputation and on a winter day back in 1909, the first successful aeroplane flight in the British Empire was made off the frozen surface of the lake. The man at the wheel was a Canadian, J.A.D. McCurdy. Great men, great events. All these have been part of Badek. And yet it remains a quiet, lakeside village of tranquil beauty. Much as it was 70 years ago when Charles Dudley Warner came to it. The man whose book first made it known to the outside world. On the Sabbath, such a quiet pervaded the street of Bedeck that the fast driving of the gales in their rattling one-horse wagons, crowded full of men, women, and children, released from church and going home, was a sort of profanation of the day. It was Indian summer, and the magic of that calm season of the year lay upon the beautiful village. Yes, we spent a beautiful holiday in Bedeck back in those summer days of 1873. An interesting holiday, too. There were always plenty of quaint characters to talk with in Bedeck. 
For instance, the man I met on my visit to the rural jail of the town. The uh, dreadful prison hoose, <laughs> as the Scotch people called it. But a more inviting place to spend the summer in, a vicious person could not have. Uh, the keeper of it was an old, garrulous, obliging man and kept codfish tackles alone. I think if he had had a prisoner who was fond of fishing, he'd have taken him along as company on the bay in pursuit of mackerel and the cod. If the prisoner had taken advantage of his freedom and attempted to escape, the jailer's feelings would have been hurt, and public opinion would hardly have approved the prisoner's conduct. Anyhow, the jail door was hospitably open, and the keeper invited me to enter. the yard, Mr. Warner, where the prisoners take their exercise each afternoon from two to five. Uh, do you uh, mean, Mr. MacDonald, that you have to keep guard over them for three whole hours? Well, oh. that seems very wearisome. Yeah, but there's no need of watching over them. No prisoner would try to escape. But the uh, holes in the fence, <laughs> any enterprising pig could go through them. They're a strong temptation. <laughs> I'll grant you that. They're a very sorry sight, Mr. Warner, but at the next court... I shall ask the commissioners to stop them up. <laughs> you, you can. We've got to keep out the dogs and cats. Oh, of course, yes. You must keep out the dogs and cats. <laughs> uh, by the way, have you any prisoners here at the moment? Uh, we one, Mr. Warner. A pleasant man he is, too. A carpenter put in jail on suspicion of stealing a buffalo robe. He's still a month to serve, but he's nicely anxious for his term to end. Not anxious to get out of jail? In heaven's name, why? Well, uh... <laughs> Suppose you come yourself and ask him. Well, thank you, Mr. MacDonald. I shall. This way. Here's the prisoner. Mr. Jock McPherson, this is Mr. Warner. How do you do, Jock? I'm glad to know you, Mr. Warner. Uh, Mr. MacDonald informs me you have no wish to be released from jail. Uh, that's very curious, and I'm anxious to know why. Well, it's like this. I've got your wife outside. You see, I became acquainted with a French woman once, and I married her. Oh, yes. I wanted to go to Boston to work at my trade. Yeah, but she would not go. No, not she. Nonetheless, I went. But she wouldn't have come to see me. So in two or three years, I came back. Uh-huh. Things didn't go very well. As a matter of fact, I never have. I can't make much suit of it. But I suppose a man's got to live his life. Is that not true? Perhaps so. But you'd better try to mend matters when you get out. It won't it seem rather good to get out and see your wife again? I don't know. I've got peace here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, perhaps I can help you. Uh, what's the trouble between you and your wife? Uh, trouble enough, Mr. Warner. Man, she's a yelper. Aye, she's the lewdest yelper this side of Scotland. <coughs> From the deck, the cabot trail leads northward past Lake Ainsley through a landscape typical of the Scottish Highlands and through the Marguerite Valley famous for its salmon pools and sunset. Along the shores of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, it reaches the fishing village of Chattercombe, where the descendants of the French Acadians still retain their native language and their homes cluster together in old world style. The French women of Chetikon retain a 
rare skill in old handicrafts, too. They know well the art of hooking rugs and weaving from native wool that has been carded and spun on wheels that are family heirlooms. You can buy the most beautiful specimens of their work. In fact, home handicrafts are a feature of life in Cape Breton, for the Scottish women are every bit as capable as their French neighbors at these ancient arts. beyond Chedicon, the Cabot Trail enters the Highlands National Park, one of the two new maritime members of Canada's family of national playgrounds, 400 square miles of rugged, untamed mountain area. Here, against a background of the sea in all its changing moods, the trail skirts along the edge of cliffs hundreds of feet high, along the island's northern coast. The scenery is breathtaking. There are wild, hilly regions with great gray parapets fronting the sea. Then, sudden gorges, bays and inlets, rippling slopes of treetops, age-old rocks that muck the vagaries of man, and small pastoral valleys watered by noisy rivulets. On the eastern shore, there are shadowy glens, fern-lined ravines, and little mirror-like lakes. The view is everywhere one of continual change a wonderland of seascape and landscape. The park is but newly opened, but there are opportunities in plenty for fishing of all kinds, hiking, boating, bathing, and motoring along the 60 miles of the Cabot Trail within the park. Outside the park on the island's eastern coast, the Cabot Trail skirts the shores of Sedan's Bay, a bay where there are memories of great deeds. This is where, in 1909, the first North American tuna fishing record was set up, a huge fish weighing nearly 700 pounds. Aye, and memories of great men, too. Have you ever heard of Angus McGaskill, the Cape Breton giant? He's buried in the bay at English Town. He stood seven feet nine inches in height and weighed 425 pounds. McGaskill toured the world with Barnum and Bailey Circus and his partner was the celebrated General Tom Thumb, the famous midget who had danced on a giant's hand which was six inches wide and 12 inches in length. There are many stories told about his feats of strength, but one of the best is that about his meeting with a bragging boxer. But let me read about it in the quaint words of his biographer, another native of Cape Breton. One day, at the time when McGaskill's fame was dawning, a renowned fighter put in his appearance. McGaskill soon suspected something, but made no remarks. He entertained a stranger in true Cape Breton style. Will you know hey, another sip of the tea, Mr. Hogan? I don't mind if I do now, Mr. McGaskill. Don't mind if I do. So, you're the biggest and strongest man alive. Aye, hmm. that's what the folks say, Mr. Hogan. And that's just what I've come to prove, Mr. McGaskill. Perhaps, uh, you're the greatest fighter, too? That's a matter of doubt, Mr. Hogan. Well, it won't be a matter of doubt any longer, McGaskill. I'm here to fight you. You compliment me, Mr. Hogan, but I'm no fighting man. 
I'm a devout Presbyterian, and our religion teaches that pugilism is an abomination in the face of God, and fraught with many evils. Sure it is now. Especially for them that fights with me. Maybe you don't feel like fighting me. You healed my opinion of fighting, Mr. Hogan. I trust you'll respect my feelings on the subject. Your feelings have nothing to do with your being afraid, have they now? You mean I'm a coward, Mr. Hogan? Speaking plainly, I do. It's hard words you're speaking, Mr. Hogan. Very hard. But for your sake, I must again refuse to fight with you. For my sake? Ha! It's your own hide you're after thinking about. The kid Britons ain't afraid I'll beat him, sir. That's why he don't want to fight with me. Come on, let's have it out. I'll show you who's the greatest fighting man in these here parts. Very well, Mr. Hogan. I shall fight you. We'll go out in the fields. Will you know, follow me? I'm coming, Mr. McGaster. To show you there's no better feeling, let's shake hands on it. That's what fighting men always do before they fight. There's my hand. Oh, what are you, what, what are you doing? Uh, did you know want to shake oh, hands? Let, let go. Get off, you're breaking my hand. Oh, man, it's a friendly clasp. Oh, look what you've done. You've crushed every finger on my hand. Are you ready now to go out for the boat, Mr. Hogan? I, 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 I'm, I'm begging your forgiveness, Mr. McGaskell. I can't fight you or can any other man living. You're as strong as Samson. That's very good, Mr. Hogan. Will you know have another sip of the tea? <laughs> Such was Angus McGaskell, a man whose size, strength, kindness, virtues, and exploits will long be remembered. In his own realm of greatness, he was the Bonnie Charlie, the Wallace, the Bruce, the Napoleon Bonaparte, the Marshal Ney, the Wellington, the Nelson, either Robert Burns or the Washington of his countless friends, according as they happened to be impressed by the different phases of his greatness. Yes, a wonderful man, Angus McGaskill. The echo of his giant footsteps must still be heard along the shores of St. Anne's Bay. But there was another wonderful thing that happened here. From St. Anne's Bay set sail a vessel on one of the most remarkable voyages ever made by man. More than a hundred years ago, the Reverend Norman MacLeod had a quarrel with the Church of Scotland, and he came out to Nova Scotia with his congregation. They settled first of all at Pictou, but later they moved to St. Anne's. The minister was a strong-minded man who ruled his flock like one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. He was over 70 years old when a letter came from his son Donald in Australia. This letter was to change the whole course of their lives. It will soon be sunset, Father. Shall I call my brothers and gather the sap for the maple trees? Aye, Mary, but be sure you turn over the pails when you've gathered it. Tomorrow's the Sabbath. We maintain may profit from nature's work on the Sabbath. Aye, Father. Oh, good day, Mr. Mackenzie. Come right in. Ah, oh, good day to you, Mr. Mackenzie. Uh, good day to you, then. Will you now take a chair, Mr. Mackenzie? Uh, thank you, Mary. 
but I will. Uh, <laughs> is it through the rumor I've heard, Reverend, that you're looking no room for Australia? That is my intention. Here is the letter from my son Donald. He bids us come at once and join him there. It's the most beautiful land in the world, he says. A land growing in milk and honey. And uh, what do you think of the proposition? Well, if you're asking my opinion, Reverend, this is what I think. How long is it now since your Donald left St. Anne's? I can uh, right well, Mr. Mackenzie. I was only a wee bairn then, six years old. It is just 13 years ago. I am not superstitious. But there is an unlucky sound to that number, Reverend. Did we not put Donald in charge of our vessel, the Maria, and instruct him to sell the cargo and ship in Glasgow and return to us? Aye, that we did, Mr. McKenzie. And did he not fail to return as he promised? Did he not disappear for your mortal ken until you received this letter? Aye. Then, how can we believe his word now that Australia is the bonny land he says it is? I'm a cloud, no speak the truth. You're a very presumptuous man, Mr. McKenzie. Did you lose one single penny over Donald's venture? Did he no send back the money he was paid for the cargo and the vessel? My, I... Uh, I complain on that score. But for a man to disappear for 13 years and never to write one word to his parents, uh, it's no decent reverend. It's... it's fruiting the commandments of God. Honor thy father and thy mother, says the scriptures. A man who can break one of God's commandments can break all of them. No, I've no trust in Silence, man! Ye profane. I am your minister. Have I no guided you the right path before? It is my will we go to this Australia. It is God's will. It is predestined. Once there we shall leave our hymns and seek our fortunes in another land. I shall be your Moses to lead you out of bondage. Uh, very good, Reverend. But you are forgetting. Australia's on the other side of the earth. Will you, hey, God, part the waters for us so we can walk there by land? You're a very dull-witted man, Mackenzie. We shall build ships to go there. Aye, but ships cost money. A great deal of money. Will you be supplying it? Yeah, you can that I've need money, Mr. Mackenzie. You've never paid me a regular stipend. But many of you are men of means. Aye, you too, Roderick Mackenzie. I've heard you here a very goodly amount stored away. You can help supply the capital to build the ships. And we'll sell our land, too. Our land, Reverend? Shall you be ruining us? Sell it, and you'll be repaid a hundred times. But if you stay here, you will be ruined. You can right well trade and keep Britain's no good. There's no longer a demand for our cattle and our timber. God is watching over us. That's why we've received this letter for Donald. You're a young man, Roderick Mackenzie. You've a whole lifetime to make another fortune. I'm an old man. I am now past my threescore years and ten, but I'm no afraid to set sail again if there's a hope we can better ourselves. We've prospered in Cape Britain. It man be God's will, we shall prosper in Australia. Tomorrow, we'll start building the keel of our vessel. And so the men of St. Anne's felled trees and built the 500-ton bark, the Margaret. On October the 28th, 1851, the minister, his family, and 130 of his people set sail for Adelaide, South Australia. 
Because of a fancy, Mary. A very strange fancy. I feel I'll never reach the promised land. Ah, dinner, you think on such a thing, Alec. Father's been taking observations of the sun all day. He says we are almost there. I, I hear them, Mary. I can will. I'll reach Australia, but not the promised land. Is not Australia the promised land we're a sailing to? No. Your destination is no there, Mary. You'll go to another land, but I'll no go with you, Mary. I'll no go with you. April the 10th, 1852. After a voyage of 164 days and a sail of 12,000 miles, they reached Adelaide. Adelaide did not suit them, and they moved on to Melbourne. But their typhoid broke out, and some of the emigrants caught the disease. Among those who died was Alec, the minister's son. Once more they sailed on, this time to another island, New Zealand. On September the 1st, 1854, the first of MacLeod's emigrants landed at Waipu in North Island, New Zealand. And there, beside the white beach, where the majestic cowrie trees looked down, they cleared the land, sowed the grain, and planted their vegetables. Today, the descendants of those courageous Cape Breton emigrants who made that unbelievable voyage across 12,000 miles of water live on, some of the most valued citizens of this great dominion under the Southern Cross. St. Anne's Bay is a symbol of old Cape Breton and of the heroic Scottish pioneers who settled in the island and laid the foundations of its present prosperity. Cape Breton's future is assured, and part of that future must surely be the Highlands National Park. Though the park's development is still in its early stages, work is already progressing to make it one of the finest of Canada's national parks. Administration buildings are being erected within its limits. A magnificent golf course is being constructed, and modern camping sites and tennis courts are also being provided. The Cape Breton Highlands National Park is destined to become one of Canada's most up-to-date vacation playgrounds, just as the old Scotch tune Loch Lomond has become the theme for this light-hearted version.
Cape Breton is one of America's natural holiday lands, a playground set apart from the rest of the continent. In Cape Breton are found the peace and quiet of hill and glen. The encircling sea tempers the atmosphere and provides nights of cooling rest. Here, Gaelic is spoken, and legend holds firm. There are beautiful vistas of lake and valley, age-old ramparts of rock battling the tides, ever-changing panoramas of sea and valley and upland. The spectacular Cabot Trail, the ruins of mighty Lewisburg, there are fishing villages to explore, hill paths that call to the hiker, streams athrill with trout and fighting Atlantic salmon, deep sea waters alive with giant swordfish and tuna. Here, too, is the picturesque Highlands National Park, offering views which are the experience of a lifetime. Here, hurry is forgotten. Here, visitors linger. And you, too, will linger if you spend your holiday in Cape Breton. Canadian Snapshots has been a presentation of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and was produced by Ian Smith with music under the direction of Samuel Hersenhorn. Another album of Canadian Snapshots will be presented next week at the same time. Radio Canada, this is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The CBC presents Canadian Snapshot. Canada. Its people, its romance, its good humor, and its colorful attractions caught by the lens of the radio camera as it sweeps once more across a nation's vast panorama. And an orchestra playing special music under the conductorship of Samuel Hersenhorn. Treasure Land.
gold. The sunshine of long summer days and sandy beaches where lazy rollers creep in from the sea. Silver, fields, woods, and waters veiled in cool moonlight. Jewels, varied and brilliant. Pale topaz, gleaming opals, sparkling sapphires and vivid emeralds. Canada's lakes, matchless gems flung by a generous creator across her wide domain. The Bador Lakes of Cape Breton, breathing a quiet charm. The lakes of the Quebec Laurentians, forest-ringed and remote. The Great Lakes, a chain of mighty waterways. And the lofty lakes of the Rockies, mirrors of all the beauties of white cloud and blue sky. this nationwide necklace of gems are the smaller lakes of Ontario. And nowhere are they lovelier or more plentiful than in the district east of Georgian Bay, the English Lake District of Canada. Lake of Bays in Muskoka, a beautiful Indian name meaning clear skies. This is true Indian country. The lakes are dotted like islands. There are cool, shadowy forests, tall pine trees, beautiful birches, pungent cedars, shady maples, fragrant balsams, and rivers whose waters were once stirred by the almost inaudible dip of the red man's paddle. There is Shadow River, beloved by the Indian poetess Pauline Johnson. A stream of tender gladness, a filmy sun and opal-tinted skies of warm midsummer air that lightly lies in mystic rings, where softly swings the music of a thousand wings that almost turns to sadness. Midway twixt earth and heaven, a bubble in the pearly air, I seem to float upon the sapphire floor, a dream of clouds of snow, above, below, drift of my drifting, dim as twilight drifts to even. The lakes are divided into two sections, the Muskoka Lakes proper, and to their east, the Lake of Bays region, Lake of Bays, Peninsula Lake, Fairy Lake, Mary Lake, and Lake Vernon, Superb bodies of fresh water, whose gateway is the town of Huntsville. It's easy to reach Huntsville, too, as it's on a mainline railway running from Toronto to North Bay, while motor roads reach it from four points of the compass. And once at Huntsville, the whole Lake of Bays region is at your command. All the principal resorts are linked by steamship service. Yes, but on looking over my map of the district, I notice that Lake of Bays has no river connection with Peninsula Lake. Is there a canal joining them? Well, in the days of the Indians, you'd have had to shoulder your canoe and make a one-mile portage from one lake to the other. But not now. Instead, you travel by railway, over the shortest complete railway system in the world. One single mile long. We call it the portage railway. But once you get a glimpse of the Lake of Bays, you won't ever want to leave. You'll be so captivated by it. For sheer beauty of landscape, I'd advise the view from the observation tower of Big One Island, 
with the famous inn just below you and the lake stretching away into the distance. Hundreds of visitors make the ascent up this tower by means of its spiral staircase, and they are well rewarded for their climb. <laughs> I remember a young man here last summer who started the romance of his life by offering to escort a charming young southern lady to the top of this tower. Watch your step there, Miss Jefferson. This is mighty nice of you bringing me way up here, Mr. What did you say your name uh, was? Morrison, Morrison. Just call me Jack. Oh, thank you, Mr. Morrison. Folks down in Georgia call me Josephine. Phew, I just have to stop to catch my breath. Is there no end to this climb? <laughs> You're sure we do come out somewhere. Oh, yes. I've never climbed anything steeper than a terrace before. Well, you're doing fine. Just a few more steps now and we'll be there. Here, take my hand. Your arm would be more help, sir. Ah, here we are on the platform. Right on top of the world. Just look. Was Georgia ever prettier than this? Prettier? Oh, it's just too wonderful. Were we way down there? Mm -hmm. Why, it's a perfect toy land for all the world. Is that the steamer I came over on? The same one. You know, I feel very important up here. I feel I could just sit on my hand and lift that boat clear out of the water. Darling. Who, me? Oh, not you, Hannah Lamb. Oh, oh of course, the, the boat. Yes, it would be. And that pasture way over there. Lovely. Pasture? Well, young lady, that's a green. Oh, you mean for golf? Yes, for golf. And it's one of the finest courses in Ontario. Oh, you'll have to pardon me. I didn't know. I only just came here. I haven't been anywhere. Do you play golf? You haven't seen anything yet. I eat, drink, and sleep it. I've done about everything with a golf ball but make a hole in one. Oh, by the way, uh, would you care for a lesson? I'd be very grateful to you, sir. Swell. How about around tomorrow? Early, say, uh, 6 o'clock? I'd be delighted to consider it after breakfast. Say, uh, 10 o'clock. Oh, I'll make it 9.30. All right. But I'll need a long rest to keep up with you. Us southerners don't like to hurry. <laughs> well, you wait till you're around a few days. Why, here at Lake of Beige, you're up a thousand feet. The air's a real tonic. I bet you'll be getting up with the birds before long. You'll have to show me. <laughs> That'll be easy. Is it a bet, um, Josephine? It's a bet, Jack. Gold. That was only the beginning of that courtship. <laughs> I don't think there was a single summer sport that Jack didn't have that girl try. And there are lots of them at the Lake of Bays. Good shot, Josephine. That makes it two love. Mr. Jack, you all didn't try to return that ball. Why, sure I did. You're just getting too good for me, that's all. Race you to the top of the hill. Oh, just you try. Horse racing's right in my blood. For a dip in the lake this morning? I sure would, Jack. Six o'clock will suit me right fine. Well, how about making it 6.30? I can't keep up with these hours of yours anymore. Uh, seems to me, sir, I'm beginning to show you.
that last dance, Jack. I enjoyed it too, Josephine. Especially having it with you. Oh, you mustn't be saying such nice things to me. I'm mighty susceptible. Well, it's nice too to be just out here on the terrace with you. Do you see that star way up there? Mm-hmm. I never saw one half so bright before. Not even in Georgia. I have. I've been looking at it for two weeks now. I hadn't reckoned you were a stargazer, Jack. Where's that star you've been looking at? It's it's right here beside me, holding my arm. What do you mean me by any chance, honey man? I mean you, darling. Mm. Beautiful words, darling. Say it again. I love it. Darling. Starting the music again. Shall we go in and dance? I'd love to, darling. Do you hear what they're playing? Oh, I know that tune. It's called Stardust. Yes. And there's some of it in your eyes right now. Lake of Bays is a treasure world whose coffers are stored with the rich delights of every outdoor summer sport. Real out of doors. A land for those who had no beauty in her ancient wildness. Yes, but there are all the comforts and conveniences of city life in this unspoiled lake country. Of course, there are fine hotels. For instance, one of the largest summer hotels in Canada. And there are also up-to-date cottages and overnight cabins. Or you can enjoy staying down on the farm at one of the country homes here. But everywhere you'll find running water, electric lights, and telephones, just like at home. And we cooks at Lake of Bays can make your mouth water the way we keep our tables. Everything's fresh off the farm. Poultry, vegetables, fruits, and berries. And our salads are famous. Well, I know one American guest who comes here every year just so she can enjoy my chicken salad. And our fresh water, which contains iron, is as good as any tonic. Sport, excellent accommodation, and accessibility to Algonquin Park and other vacation haunts of Ontario make this district today one of the most alluring tourist regions of Canada. from England in the last century to clear a farm for myself, nobody would have dreamed of spending a vacation here. But it was as beautiful then as it is now. I shall never forget my first steamer trip from Gravenhurst to Bracebridge. The scenery was glorious, and as we wound our way in and out among the islands and up the river, I really felt as if Earth could not exhibit anything more wonderful. There was not a ripple on the water, and the reflections of rock and woodland and sky were perfect. Occasionally, a small cottage was to be seen peeping from the dense foliage. But for the most part, on all sides was primeval wilderness. The handiwork of man was hardly to be seen in the way of clearings and buildings. We passed immense booms of logs tied to the shore, guarded by wise-looking cranes which stood gazing soberly into the water, 
waiting for a swift peck at some passing fish, or stalking in a solemn manner up and down the logs like wary sentinels. Now and again a loon would bob up unexpectedly near the boat, give utterance to its weird cry and dive out of sight. Or a flock of gulls would rise in a body from some rock and follow in the wake of the steamer in search of stray fragments of food thrown out from the cook's quarters. The river was as beautiful as the lake, and all along the shores could be seen immense groups of ferns, and the bayous and reaches were filled with lily leaves and shoots of strange water plants. Uh, the farms then were miserable affairs. Two or three acres of la land with the burnt stumps still standing in them. Uh, none of the settlers boasted anything more palatial than a rude log cabin, uh, usually with only one room for the family to live and sleep in. Yes, the Lake of Bays district has changed a lot in the last 50 years. Uh, dancing, for instance. I remember the first dance I attended. I went there together with another young Englishman by the name of, uh, uh, let me see now, it's uh, such a long time ago. Oh, yes, yes, I remember. Uh, Mr. Chichester Skeffington. Uh, the occasion was a housewarming given by a settler living on the shore of Lake of Bays. Uh, the party nearly ended in the undoing of my friend Skeffington. It was this way. Uh, we'd had a merry time in all the hops and jumps and eccentric movements of the square dances, and things were going with a swing when the caller called for partners. Kiss her on the floor is next. Now come along, girls. Pick your partners. Great Scott, Hawkins. Did you hear that? Kiss her on the floor. It sounds like a corking idea, Skippington. There are some pretty girls here. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to have one of them choose you. Oh, I say that's a beauty coming towards me, Hawk. Yes. But look at the other one. She's the ugliest girl in the room. And she's coming after me. <laughs> Keep your courage up, Skeffington. Will you be my partner, sir? Why, I'd be delighted. Thank you. Oh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Skeffington's my friend's name. <laughs> oh, Mr. Skeffington, I'm going to take you for my partner. You're, you're going to take me? But really, I say, I must apologize. You see, it's all quite impossible. The truth is, a log fell on me yesterday. Yes, yes, when we were piling up the logs, a spike slipped and I hurt my shoulder. Look, look, I can hardly move it. Oh, isn't that awful? Oh, but it don't matter. Not for kiss around the floor. Now, you sit down on the bench, and when we're finished dancing, I'll be waiting for you. I'll be waiting for you. She'll be waiting. Phew. Now I'm in for it, Hawkins. What am I going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? Why, go through with it, of course, and kiss her. Do you mean to say I have to kiss that? <laughs> it looks like it, doesn't it? I say, the girls are dancing about the room in couples. Yes, it's delightful, don't you think? It has an air of real Arcadian freshness. Reminds me of the days of the Maypole. <laughs> Now look at what they're doing. 
They're spreading handkerchiefs on the floor, and they're kneeling down in front of them. Uh, come along now, gentlemen. The ladies are waiting for your kisses. Good Lord, Hawkins. We have to kneel on the handkerchiefs. Yes, it's delightful, Skeffington. Now, come along now and claim your kiss. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Skeffington. Oh, I feel so bashful-like. There. Oh. Well, first kisses are over. Now, gentlemen, pick your partners. Oh, Mr. Skaffington, I'd like you to be my partner again. But, miss, I'm undergoing a dreadful ordeal. It's it's most excruciating. Oh, Mr. Skaffington, you use such fine words. I'll oh, please be my partner again, just this one. Oh, really? I, I must be leaving for home now. Oh, oh. Mr. Skaffington, I believe you don't want me for a partner. Miss, you've hit the nail right on the head. I do not. Well, well I'll tell George on you. George, what? did you hear what this man said to me? Oh, no, I did. What did he say? He said he don't want to be my partner. Oh, he don't, eh? Say, young fella, where was you brung up anyhow? This gal's my sister, and if you don't dance with her for a spell, I'll knock some daylight into you, see? Oh, yes, I see. Oh, well, miss, come along then. Let's have the agony over as soon as possible. Agony? Oh, he uses the loveliest words, don't he, George? I'll be waiting, Mr. Gaffey. The harbors and inlets of Canada's ocean coasts and those of her thousands of lakes make ideal summering places. One of the most treasured by visitors is beautiful Mahone Bay in Nova Scotia's south shore. the vestibule of heaven. Its waters are of enchanting loveliness. Quaintly formed picturesque islands lie everywhere, peacefully looking up at the sky. We blue noses living on Mahone Bay say there are 365 islands, one for every day in the calendar. But some folks that don't live here say there are only 359. Rank heresy, we calls it. We'd sooner die first than admit it. Mahone Bay is a bay of beaten gold encircled by emerald woods, an ideal setting for a treasure island. And there is a treasure island here in Mahone Bay. Oak Island, it's called, because of the fine oak trees on it. And there's real treasure on it, so folks have said that have dug for it. And you know, sometimes when I look across at that island as the sun's going down, I can see the ghosts of old Captain Kidd and his pirates burying their treasure chests. Step to it, my lads. Fetch along that block and tackle. Cast it over this stump branch of the oak tree. Lively there. Hold tightly. I've all these chests into the pit. Ah, two million pounds worth of gold. Dubloons, guineas, and my dories. A king's fortune, eh? Aye, Captain. 
A fortune we've robbed and murdered innocent souls for. A fortune we'll all swing and sun-dry for. Avert, you swab! If ever they bring us to the gallows in London town, I'll offer him gold enough to make a chain round London if they set us free. Ah, none of your sad looks, you preacher-fine scoundrel. You ought to be as merry as though you were dancing a jig. Aye, it's a dance looks mighty like finishing in a rope's end and execution dock, it does. Ah. You've seen them, maybe, hanged in chains, birds about them, seamen pointing them out as they go down with the tide. Yes, it's a pitiable way for men to meet the Almighty. <laughs> and that's how we're going to meet him, as sure as I'm a Christian soul. Ha! <laughs> I get that bloodthirsty ruffian who calls himself a Christian. <laughs> Maybe he'd sooner be in England than saying his prayers of a Sunday morning and burying a treasure we'll someday come back and claim so as we can live like kings of the earth. Ah, <laughs> oh, Captain. But we'll not be acclaiming this treasure. What? Last night, there were strange lights moving about under this oak tree. There's evil in store for us, Captain. Make no mistake. Them lights are a warning to us. <laughs> lights! <laughs> a warning! <laughs> Captain Kidd can beat any craft that sails the seven seas. Come the devil himself. He'll never take me to the gallows. Lower me, lads. Lower away there. <laughs> Oak Island. For almost a century and a half, it's been a lodestar attracting dozens of adventurers to seek for buried gold. Signs have not been lacking. A pit was discovered here which had been dug to a depth of over 170 feet. Oak platforms have also been found at various levels, but all efforts to reach the supposed treasure chests have failed. Captain Kidd, if it was he who dug the pit, joined it to the bay with water channels which let in the sea and have foiled all attempts to uncover the treasure. You may scoff at the idea of there being treasure here, but old-timers like myself living on Mahone Bay believe in it as surely as we believe in the number of our islands. You know, I saw a drill come up once from a pit with particles of gold clinging to it, and another thing sticking to it was a tiny piece of sheepskin parchment with two letters written on it with a quill pen in Indian ink. Sometimes mighty valuable stuff must have been buried there. Buried treasure or not, Oak Island remains a tantalizing memorial of piracy on the Spanish main. With the shore curved like an old cutlass, making a sheltered cove for landings, it well might serve as an ideal illustration for Treasure Island. But Mahone Bay contains other treasures than those of legendary gold hidden by buccaneers. There are its delicious scallops, world-renowned. There are outdoor sports, bathing and deep-sea fishing. While the capacious harbor of Chester is one of the finest yachting waters in North America... With its superb blending of land and water, the Hone Bay is justly famous as one of Canada's favorite summer resorts, one of the brightest jewels of Canada's vacation treasure land. Canadian Snapshots has been a presentation of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and was produced by Ian Smith with music under the direction of Samuel Hersenhorn. Another album of Canadian Snapshots will be presented next week at the same time.
Radio-Canada. This is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The CBC presents Canadian Snapshots. Canada, its people, its romance, its good humor, and its colorful attractions caught by the lens of the radio camera as it sweeps once more across a nation's vast panorama, and an orchestra playing special music under the conductorship of Samuel Hersenhall. again it is blossom time in Ontario, and the Niagara Peninsula is now an enchanted land. Fragrance fills the air in 10,000 orchards, and the sight of blossoms along every bough brings heaven to earth. There are the delicate pinks of the peach. The vivid white of plum and sweet cherry, the rich cream of pear. But queen among them all is the apple blossom in its dress of virgin purity. Apples. Apples with a blush upon their cheeks. They have been with the world ever since God planted an apple tree in the Garden of Eden. Apples are an ancient symbol of love. And perhaps that's what is meant for the saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Halloween wouldn't be near such good fun if boys and girls didn't have apples to duck for at Halloween parties. Over the hills and far away, a little boy steals from his morning play, and under the blossoming apple tree, he lies and he dreams of the things to be. Next week, we'll see another burst of blossoms, this time throughout the length of the lovely Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia. On a day in early June, when a young lad was I, I was caught in a charm like a wild bird's cry, with the sorcery of summer on the marshes by the tide and apple blossoms snowing down by every roadside. For the glory of the world laid a spell on me. And I gave my heart away to the sweetheart of the sea. But this week belongs to the Niagara Peninsula. And today the countryside is a billowing white nosegay held in the hand of Mother Earth. Blossoms, delicate, fragile, their stay a brief one to be enjoyed only during these few golden days of springtime. Niagara. Its blossoms are symbolic of brevity and fragility. But yet, the word Niagara is the most common metaphor used to represent perpetual, irresistible force. For at the end of the peninsula, 
is the Niagara River and one of the most awe-inspiring and majestic sights the world can offer, Niagara Falls. Niagara holds in fee more than one-half the fresh water in the universe. Water that penetrates into the very heart of the continent. Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, and Lake Superior. A mile above the Great Falls, the Niagara River begins a mad, desperate rush to Lake Ontario. The river forms there a series of rapids, a spectacle of wild, lashing, surging fury, which once seen remains in the memory forever. As you look up the stream, the rapids are seen tumbling on toward you like huge breakers on a sandy beach, but with no shore on which to spend their force. The clouds form the skyline, and it's as if the sky were open for a second deluge. It is truly called a shoreless sea, a magnificent sight. Onward the water rushes in its madness, and with a terrific roar hurls its volume over the 160-foot precipice into the chasm below, a boiling, seething cauldron from which rise beautiful columns of spray. A mighty flood of water, reborn as it dies, seemingly impossible for any power to stop its flow. Yet, Niagara's Falls did stop once. On March the 29th, 1848, the impossible actually happened. It came about like this. On the previous afternoon, a violent gale had begun to blow from the direction of Lake Erie. Oh, Martha, where are you? Oh, here, Jonathan, I'm coming. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I expected you back from Queenston two hours ago. I was beginning to be worried. There's such a strong wind blowing outside. Uh, one of the worst I've ever seen. The roads were blocked in several places from fallen oh. trees. Yeah, I had a hard time getting our team past them. Oh, you must be all tired out, Jonathan. Uh. Now sit down, and I'll bring you your supper right away. Uh. Uh, yes, I am tired. I think I'll take off these heavy boots and rest my feet. Here, let me help uh. you, Jonathan. Uh, I met Ben Wilson on the way back. He told me Lake Erie's full of floating ice that's been blowing out from shore. Well, there's one blessing. There aren't any boats on the lake at this time of the year. Uh, there we are. That's one of them off. Now the other. All right. Hark. It well nigh sends the shivers up my spine to hear that wind. It's been blowing so loudly this last hour, I've hardly been able to hear the falls, even when I went outside the house. <laughs> I was beginning to think they weren't there anymore. Old Niagara, and nothing can ever stop it. The falls will roar on till doomsday. <clears throat> that makes the parison, Jonathan. Now I'll fetch you your supper. And after that, you'd better go right off to bed and get your rest. But in the morning... Oh, Jonathan! Hmm? 
Uh, yes, Martha. Uh, anything wrong? Wrong? Something uh, terrible's happened. Get up this second and come here to the window. Uh, uh, yes, Martha. What is it? There. Look. Why? Why, it can't be. The rocks are bare. The falls have stopped running. Jonathan, it's come at last. This is the day of judgment. Yes, Niagara had run dry. The violent southwestern gale had driven the mass of floating ice in Lake Erie into the narrow entrance to the Niagara River and heaped it there, forming a dam that cut off almost the whole water supply from the lake. Of course, during that day, the warmth of the sun and the waters of Lake Erie made inroads upon the barrier, and soon Niagara resumed the flow that until then had always seemed to be eternal. No one acquainted with the Niagara of today can imagine the conditions existing there a century ago. The land along the banks of old Niagara was under private ownership, with a different fee charged for every point of vantage from which to view the rapids or the falls. The Niagara of our day, a century ago, was a sorry sort of place just like a country fair. Hurdy-gurdy shows could be heard at all hours. Swarms of peddlers hawked their cheap wares at one's very elbows. Tents were pitched everywhere, containing the world's tallest man, its fattest woman, or the most astonishing reptile in a state of captivity. Calves with five feet were as common as those with four. A whole army of fakers and extortioners was encamped in view of one of the world's scenic marvels. Huge signboards made a hideous show along the riverbanks, inviting visitors to purchase hair balsam and ginger tonic. It was disgraceful beyond words. Today, the sideshows and the signboards have disappeared. And in place of the former private properties, a continued series of public parks lines the edge of the river. These Niagara parks are owned by the government of Ontario, and in them natural beauty has been preserved to thrill and inspire countless visitors from every part of the world. There are a hundred things to be seen and enjoyed at Niagara. Finest of all, of course, are the falls themselves. The majestic cataracts may be seen from many points of vantage and in numerous delightful ways. But there's one way to view the falls that will give you the thrill of a lifetime, and that is by means of Table Rock House. When you enter Table Rock House, you are directed to a spotless dressing room where you check your shoes and hat and are then clothed in oilskins from head to foot. An elevator carries you down through the solid Niagara rocks you step out into a cool, rock-cut tunnel and follow subterranean passages to lookout portals on the very edge of the abyss and behind the thundering falls. 
All about you are countless tons of wild, crashing water, creating an inferno that sends up vast clouds of mist. You'll be thrilled completely. But be sure you've a good heart before you go there. The excitement is really tremendous. Table Rock House is only one of the exciting spots at Niagara. There's the Spanish aerial car carrying passengers across the whirlpool. Beautiful Victoria Park and the Oaks Garden Theater, an architectural masterpiece. There's the sight of the falls by night, when batteries of searchlights flood more than a billion of candle power on the leaping waters. There are old battlegrounds, Queenston Heights, where General Brock met a glorious death, and ancient forts like Fort George at the Niagara's mouth. And there's the Maid of the Mist, a tiny steamer that carries visitors through the vast clouds of mist and boiling waters almost to the foot of the falls, a perfectly unique cruise. There has been a steamer here by that name for almost a century. The name of the Maid of the Mist is taken from an Indian legend that tells of two suitors for the hand of a beautiful Indian maiden. The ardent lovers met in mortal combat upon an island at the brink of the falls. Seeing the one of her choice struck dead, the maid leaped into her canoe and was carried over the cataract. According to the legend, the maiden may still be seen at the foot of the falls as a misty figure with her arm ever reaching upward towards her lover. There is the memory on the Niagara River of another ship, a ship which sailed from here up the Great Lakes more than 250 years ago. Joined with the memory of that ship is that of one of the bravest and noblest men in Canada's story, René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de La Salle. It happened on the Niagara River in 1679. La Salle is undertaking an expedition to the upper Great Lakes to trade with the Indians for furs. But rather than use canoes to carry his supplies and return loaded with beaver skins, he decides to build a vessel to carry them. And there, on the Niagara River, was built and launched the Griffin, the first sailing vessel ever to be seen above the falls. On the seventh day of August, they wait for a wind at the calm entrance of Lake Erie. Think of it, Monsieur Tonti. In a little while, we shall unfurl our sails and set out over the waters of these mighty lakes. Does it not stir your heart? For myself, Sieur de la Salle, I am willing to follow you to the end of the earth. But our pilot has no desire to guide us across these strange waters. He has had a dream, foreboding ill fortune. I beg you, Monsieur, do not sail in this vessel. Well, I will stop now because of a foolish pilot's dream. Tonti, I have a dream, too, to found a rich empire for France. To our west lies a land that is as rich in furs as Ikade in silks and spices. Already I have sent 15 of my men ahead to St. Ignace. Shall I desert them because of a white-livered rat? Bon Dieu, Mrs. this pilot is not worthy to guide a river barge. A fresh breeze is springing up. In a little while, we shall be sailing upon the waves of the Lake of the Erie. 
Ours will be the first sail since I since the beginning of the world. From Lake Erie to Lake Huron, the Griffin sails on in fair weather. But the wind dies to a calm, then freshens to a gale, and then rises to a furious tempest. The main yard and topmast are down. <coughs> we are lost, you tell us. I shall die here. I... Who have won great glory as a captain in long and happy voyage across the great ocean. But now I shall drown like a cat in a miserable lake where no white man dwells. It is you, Sir de la Salle, who have destroyed us, but you too shall perish with us. Silence, you dog. I have listened to enough of your prattling. Command yourself to heaven, monsieur. And hold your prayers like my And their prayers are answered. The Griffin lives through the storm and comes at last to Haven at the outpost of St. Ignace on the island of Mackinac at the mouth of Lake Michigan. Here, LaSalle collects the beaver skins already secured by his advance party and decides to send them back in the Griffin while he and 14 others press inland in search of more furs. Five men will be sufficient to go back with you, monsieur. Take them with all speed to Niagara and return at once. We shall be waiting for you at the end of the Lake of the Illinois. The rest of the party shall go south with me. Our canoes will be sufficient for us. You have my charge, mon capitaine. The vessel is in your keeping. See that you guide us safely to Niagara and back. Uh, it is so easy to say, monsieur, that word safely. <laughs> no, but I shall obey. I shall go. And I shall return to Niagara and back. Farewell, monsieur. Farewell, monsieur. Et bon voyage. With that one parting shot, the Griffin set sail for Niagara. But after she'd once passed across the horizon, she was never seen again by human eyes. Lost in a storm, perhaps, and today, somewhere on the bottom of Lake Huron, lie hid her rotted timbers. The timbers of the first sailing vessel to navigate Lake Erie and the Upper Lakes. But La Salle, not disheartened by the loss of his ship, went on other voyages into the country south of the Great Lakes. And finally, he became the first white man ever to reach from the interior the mouth of the world's longest river, the Mississippi. Through leafless forests, past Indian towns, through swamps and cane breaks, ran the tortuous river. At last, after incredible toil and suffering, La Salle reached the broad bosom of the mighty Gulf and raised a column bearing the arms of France. In the name of the Most High, mighty, invincible, and victorious prince, Louis the Great, by grace of God, King of France and of Navarre, fourteenth of that name, I, this ninth day of April, 1682, by virtue of the commission of His Majesty, and in the name of His Majesty, do take possession of this country of Louisiana. René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de la Salle, 
France received the gift of an empire, the fertile plains of Texas, the vast basin of the Mississippi, from its frozen northern springs to the sultry borders of the Gulf of Mexico, from the wood ridges of the Alleghenies to the bare peaks of the Rocky Mountains, all this far-flung territory belonged to the Kingdom of France. Canada holds dear to her heart the high deeds of her early French explorers, and none is worthy of more remembrance than the discovery of the mouth of the Mississippi by Sieur de La Salle, he who built that small craft on the Niagara River, the first of a long line of sailing vessels and steamships to ply the waters of the Great Lakes above the Niagara Falls. Today, along these same waters, as well as those of Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence River, pass palatial steamers that serve those seeking rest and relaxation for a delightful summer's cruise. From Port Arthur at the western end of Lake Superior to the Saguenay River near the mouth of the St. Lawrence, there are a dozen different cruises to be made for the choosing. A lake cruise. One of my friends has been talking of nothing else. She had a perfectly wonderful time on the trip. Never had such fun in all her life, she said. She ended up, too, by marrying a young man she met on board the boat. Hello, Doris. What are you doing? Browse, browsing in your deck chair? Of course not, you silly. I was looking at those beautiful gulls following the ship. Oh, yeah. oh, I just love the way they glide along. They hardly ever seem to move their wings. Yes. And they'll keep on following us like that until we reach our next port. Strange birds. Seem to like ships as much as you do. And who wouldn't like a ship like this? Oh, it's simply heavenly to be able to lie back here in a chair and look out over the water. Not a speck of land in sight. Why, it's just as if we'd left the earth and all its troubles behind us. Like living in another century. Hmm. Feeling philosophic today. You'd better snap out of it before the afternoon dancing starts. Otherwise, you'll find yourself dancing a minuet instead of a foxtrot. Oh. Speaking of another century, Ken, I have a letter in my bag here you'd be interested in seeing. A letter? Not a love letter, I hope. No such luck. This letter's almost a hundred years old, dated 1846. Hmm. It was written by my great-grandfather to a sister of his in England just after he came to Canada. It's been handed down in our family like a sort of heirloom. I brought it along because it was written about a trip on Lake Ontario. I thought it'd be nice to compare the boat he traveled on then with this one. Yeah. Here, listen to this. The comfort of the boat was very great. It was a regular drawing room with pots of the most rare and beautiful flowers, elegantly arranged, with a pianoforte, highly colored paintings and portraits, and a tout ensemble which, when the lamps were lit and conversation entered into between the ladies and gentlemen then and there assembled, made one quite forget we were at sea on Lake Ontario, the beautiful lake, which, like other beautiful creations, can be very angry if vexed. One of the lady passengers turned out to be a highly skillful performer on the pianoforte, though I had a difficult time persuading her to play. I beg of you, Miss Hamilton, you really must play for us. Oh, Mr. Pringle, 
It's most immodest, don't you think, for a young lady to perform in the presence of all these strangers? Strangers, Miss Hamilton? Oh, yes, but on board ship where fortune has decreed our lot to be thrown together, the accustomed English reserve should ever give way to a genial sociability. But I'm so out of practice, Mr. Pringle. Oh, really, I am. Ah, I perceive the bashfulness of the true artist. Now, come, I beg of you once again, do play the piano foot for us. Oh, the vibration of the boat affects me so. I fear I may presently swoon away. Oh, I, I'm most sorry. Oh, this is indeed distressing. But I um, shall not disappoint you. Be so kind as to lead me to the piano. Well, allow me, Miss Hamilton. But what shall I play? Oh, I'm quite sure a little Mozart would be very acceptable. Ah, Mozart. How divine. There is a sonata of his I learned once. Shall I play that for you? Oh, by Joe, splendid. What? That sonata of Mozart quite finished him. Or was it Miss Hamilton's feminine charms? Anyhow, it wasn't two months before they were married. And so... So she became your great-grandmother. Mm -hmm. A beautiful woman she was, too, to judge from her portrait. Well, it seems to me that uh, beauty like that has been handed down in your family. No, none of your flattery, Ken. Not a bit of it. The first thing you know, Doris, I'll be a bay in court to you myself, my proud beauty. <laughs> Just as your great-grandfather did to Miss Hamilton. Well, here's an opportunity for you. There starts the music for the dancing. Oh, do you hear what they're playing? Sure, it's, uh, it's uh, in an 18th century drawing room. Yes, but it's the Mozart Sonata in C major, all done up in modern dress. How about that minuet you promised to dance with me? Okay, with me.
Canada's wealth of inland and coastal waterways are adequately served by fleets of modern steamships operating on alluring cruise itineraries. There are colorful lake and river cruises of a few hours' duration, overnight and weekend cruises, and glorious coastal and Great Lakes cruises with all the zest and glamour of an ocean voyage. So it's no trouble at all for you to select one to suit your taste and the time at your disposal. You will be repaid a hundredfold by the effects of such a voyage on your mind and your body. Canadian Snapshots has been a presentation of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and was produced by Ian Smith with music under the direction of Samuel Hursenhorn. Another album of Canadian Snapshots will be presented next week at the same time. Radio Canada. This is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The CBC presents Canadian Snapshot. Canada. Its people, its romance, its good humor, and its colorful attractions. Caught by the lens of the radio camera, it sweeps once more across the nation's vast panorama. With music also by one of Canada's native composers. Snapshot number one. We turn our camera upon one of Canada's maritime provinces, New Brunswick. On the north, Quebec. On the west, our friendly next-door neighbor, the state of Maine. On the east, the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And on the south, the tides of the Bay of Fundy. tides of the Bay of Fundy are the highest in the whole world. Why, I've seen them in places along the coast rising more than 50 feet. At my hometown of Munson on the Petticodiac River, you can see the tidal war, a solid war. silver that almost makes your heart stand still. It's so beautiful. And just above the mouth of our St. John River, you can see the reversing falls. They're the queerest thing you ever saw. 
flowing down to the sea at low tide and flowing back inland when the tide sets in. And right in the St. John Harbor, you can land salmon the like of which you never hook anywhere else. Don't you believe it? Up here in the north of the province on the Restigouche River is the place for you seasoned fishermen who want the thrill of landing real beauties. Yeah, but what about our Miramichi River? Yes, and the Upsoquit. Yeah, and the Nepisiquit. A fisherman's paradise. Go where you will in New Brunswick. You'll be certain of finding streams and waterways teeming with fish, where the angler will enjoy really fine fishing. Snapshot number two. The scene of this view is the dining table of a modest boarding house in Huntsville, one of Ontario's foremost winter resorts. hope you enjoy your week here, Mr. Perry. Well, thank you. You don't ski, do you? Do I? I've looked forward to this for weeks. Oh. And what skiing weather we're having right now. Real powder snow and just the right amount of cold. I'll show some of the experts here a thing or two. I'm sorry you ski, Mr. Perry. Well, why, Mrs. Carson? Every year I see young men like you come to Huntsville to ski. It's so sad. Would you please pass me the bread? The bread? Yes. Uh, what's sad about oh, it? Thank you. Well, there was Mr. Greenlee, who stayed here last week. Oh, it was too bad. Pickle? Uh, pickle? Well, I'm beginning to think, Mrs. Carson, you're trying to frighten me into going back home. Well, it happened last Wednesday over Limberlost Way. It was all so sudden and shocking. Such a fine-looking young gentleman, too. Can't I give you another helping of potatoes? Yes, uh, thanks. But, uh, Mr. Greenlee, you don't mean... Oh, yes, poor Mr. Greenlee. Well, there they found him. Sprawled out in the snow, his face turned up to the sky. Dead? Dead, no. But he did hurt his ankle awful bad. Sprained it, he did. <laughs> Is that all? Well, I... <laughs> you had me going there for a minute. Ah, what's a sprain or two? As long as I'm able to hobble onto the train when I'm to leave, I don't care what I sprain. Oh. Uh, the CNR will see that I get home from there. A great outfit, the CNR. 20,000 miles of service. I'm an employee of theirs. Uh, who would have thought it? 20,000 miles. Oh, but it doesn't beat the railroad over at Lake of Bay. Ah, now, don't tell me you've got a railroad here longer than the CNR. Why, that would just about make it the longest in the world. Of course it's not the longest in the world. <laughs> but they do say it's the shortest. Yes, the shortest complete railway system in the world, owned and operated by an individual company, is a portage railroad one mile long, joining Peninsular Lake with Lake of Bay's Ontario. It's effect. Snapshot number three. Tonight's representative among Canadian composers. Hector Grattan, 35 years old, Montreal-born, is a well-known figure in the musical circles of Canada's metropolis. He has caught the spirit of the French-Canadian folk tunes and has blended with his own individual style to express something new and unique in Canadian music. Hector Grattan's original and specially composed music is used as a background to one of the CBC's French network programs, Maria Chapdelaine. We shall now hear Hector Grattan's Rondo for Strings and Piano. The orchestra is under the direction of Samuel Hersenhorn.
have just heard Rondo for Strings and Piano by tonight's Canadian composer, Hector Grattan. Snapshot number four. Canada, the land of the maple. The United States, the land of the stars and stripes. For over 125 years, the hands of the United States and the Dominion of Canada have been clasped in unbroken friendship. Material witness of this friendship can be found everywhere along the boundary joining, not separating, the two countries. 4,000 miles of unprotected borders. The Great Bridge over the Thousand Islands in the St. Lawrence River, built by both governments. The International Peace Garden on the imaginary line dividing Manitoba and North Dakota. But... As a sure sign of mutual understanding, nothing surpasses the activities of four towns on the international boundary. On the Canadian side, St. Stephen and Milltown in New Brunswick. On the American, Callis and Milltown in Maine. Here is cooperation between different nations at its best. Their water all comes from a common spring. A Canadian plant supplies the electric power and the United States supplies household gas. The hospital at St. Stephen, New Brunswick... <laughs> serves the people of all four towns. Here in this hospital waits an expectant father who has brought his wife from Callis across the border. Oh, nurse. Yes, Mr. Norris. What's, what, what's happening, nurse? Nothing as yet, Mr. Norris. Oh. Now do be patient, Mr. Norris. Everything's all right. All right? Do you know I've been waiting here for over six hours? And you say it's all right. Gosh, if, if you'd only let me see her or something. Well, if it'll relieve you, I'll go inside and inquire. Well, here's one of our interns, Dr. Carroll. He'll look after you. Dr. Carroll, this is Mr. Norris. His wife is about to have a baby. Oh, congratulations, Mr. Norris. Hmm. Have a cigarette? No, thanks. I don't smoke. Oh, it doesn't matter. It'll quieten your nerves. Have one. Life? First one, eh? Just about. I, I never cared for them. Oh, not the cigarette. The baby, I mean. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm kind of worried about it. You know how a fellow feels. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Do you think it'll be a boy? Mm, you never can tell. Chancy little thing. But you won't be disappointed. Oh, I, I kind of wished it to be a boy. So I'd be sure the, the family name would be carried on. Well, maybe we'll know now. Here comes Miss King again. Anything happened, nurse? It's all over, Mr. Norris. Oh. Your wife came through it splendidly. And congratulations, it's a boy. Oh. Did you hear that, doctor? <laughs> Did you hear that? Oh, it kind of awes me. To think that I, Jack Norris, have added another citizen to the United States. And don't forget, Mr. Norris, another citizen to Canada, too. You don't mean it. It was twins. Oh, no, Mr. Norris. But your boy, being born in Canada of American parents, will have dual nationality. Yes, a child born in Canada of American parentage automatically acquires the right of United States citizenship as well as Canadian. Is that right? Yes, it's a fact. Snapshot number five. Once again, the music of Hector Grattan, young French-Canadian composer. The work to be heard is Chanson et Danse for solo violin and orchestra. The soloist is Harry Adaskin. 
Mr. Adaskin, accompanied by the orchestra under the direction of Samuel Hersenhorn, now plays Chanson et Dance by Hector Grattan.
You have just heard Harriet Daskin and the orchestra playing Chanson et Dance, the second of two compositions by the Montreal composer Hector Grattan. Snapshot number six. <laughs> Each year, thousands of sportsmen travel with gun and guide into the far-flung hunting grounds of Canada. Such a hunter and guide we now find at the end of a successful day sitting around a campfire. Uh, oui, monsieur. Uh, that was one fine moose you shoot today, Mr. Young. Uh, the, uh, the antler, the horn, you know? Uh, it must have spread, well, more than seven feet, eh? No, 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 Jack. No exaggerating. Uh, let's say five feet. Oh, bon Dieu. I never see bigger animal than this. Never, Jacques? Well, no, uh, except uh, the grizzly bear. Uh, that's the biggest animal you can hunt in Canada, you know. Would you believe it, Jacques? I once hunted an animal that was much, much bigger. Oh, well, maybe you go hunting in Africa for elephant, no? No, no, it was right here in Canada. This animal was uh, a hundred times larger than your grizzly bear. A hundred? Oh, 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 oh yes, no, indeed. no, no, you make a joke, eh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, what, what do you use to hunt him? Uh, field cannons? Eh? No, no. All we used was spades. Oh, you dig him up, eh? That's an uh, animal that they live in the ground? Uh, that's uh, maybe a prairie dog, huh? No, no, it, it wasn't a prairie dog we were hunting. But it was on the prairies in Alberta, along the banks of the Red Deer River. You see, the animals I'm talking about are dead, huh? have been for millions of years. They call them dinosaurs. And you have to dig if you want to hunt them. You aren't a dead animal? Well, that sounds crazy to me. <laughs> but not so crazy to the scientists who have dug for them. For over 40 years, the Red Deer River Valley in Alberta has been famous for the fossil remains of dinosaurs, the huge prehistoric monsters who once roamed this part of Canada. Notable collections of these remains can be seen in many of the fine museums in Canadian cities. Snapshot number seven. This week's prize-winning actuality, sent in by Mrs. A. Lawson of 10908 Plaza Boulevard, Montreal North. Quebec, the gray old city on the hill, lies with a golden glory on her head, dreaming throughout this hour so fair, so still, of other days, and her beloved dead. Quebec, that has witnessed the most stirring scenes in Canadian history beneath her ancient citadel, is a city where the romance of the past lurks around every corner. Tonight, through the eyes of our special events department, we shall look around one of those corners, and there we shall find the narrowest street in all Canada. This unusual snapshot was taken in Quebec City. It's a fact that we're speaking to you at this moment from the oldest and narrowest street in Canada's oldest city, a street called Sulacap in the very heart of Lower Quebec. Those of you who know Quebec will, of course, know Sulacap, for it's famous as a point of interest to visitors. But for those of us who don't know it, 
And there are a lot of interesting points that we don't know. We're going to spend the next few minutes finding out what we can. In the first place, Sula Cap means under the cape, and certainly that name suits the street perfectly. It's at the very foot of the great towering Cape Diamond, famous as the site of Quebec City's first fort, and famous today for the massive structure of the Chateau Frontenac, which towers high over us. The very first thing you notice when you enter Sula Cap is its narrowness. You notice that the traffic sign firmly insists upon one-way traffic. But as you look about, you wonder how even one car could get through. And as a matter of fact, there's about, I think, three or four inches clearance in some spots and no more. Well, then, the narrowness of the street is the very first thing that strikes you the minute that you come into it. Even, and then another thing, the second thing that strikes you, I think even before you've had a chance to look around, is the youngsters, children who actually live on this street and who make a point of running after you and asking in their own unique way for pennies. Matter of fact, we're surrounded by children right at this moment. Maybe you've been noticing that. And uh, already, I think, we've handed out quite a tidy sum in coppers. But the children aren't at all offensive. In fact, there's something rather appealing about them. And although this is, I think, definitely one of the underprivileged parts of the city, the kiddies themselves are healthy enough-looking specimens and make quite a picture wrapped up in thick winter clothes. And then, as you walk along the street with about a dozen youngsters trailing along right behind you, it sort of gives you a Pied Piper of Hamelin feeling, and quite a pleasant one, too. But so much for the children right at the moment. Right now, we've been walking along, and right now, we've stopped in front of one of the few stores which have access to Sula Cat. Actually, I'll see by looking up the sign, this is Mr. Messier's store. And actually, this is the back door, because the store runs the width of a block and fronts on St. Paul Street, which is just to the south of us. But this definitely looks, definitely looks like one of the older establishments of the lower town, and I think we'll perhaps be able to find out more about the history of this narrow street. Let's just go in and see if we can find the proprietor. How do you do, sir? Are you by any chance the owner of the store here? Oui, monsieur. And uh, in that case, then, would you be Mr. Messier? Sure I am. That's fine. Well, now, I wonder if you could tell us what you can about Sula Cap. What do you know about it? I mean, we're interested in knowing whether we were right in saying that it is the oldest street in Quebec. Is that a fact? It's the oldest street, sure. Yeah, that's right, eh? <laughs> and tell me, has it always been called Sula Cap? No, not exactly. And if we find we'll find out in by the plan of St. Charles, the old plan of Quebec that in eighteen thirty three, this street was called Soto Matlow Street. I see. Well, what does that mean, do you know? Well Soto Matlow is a street that runs now on the on the south of the uh, of the street. Just in front of the uh, the river. Oh, I see. So it was in eighteen thirty three then that they first began calling this Sula Cap? A few years after, five years after, they call it Sula Cab Street. And it's been that ever since? Then, sure. Well, now, the buildings, as I look up and down this street, most of the buildings look pretty old. Do you know if any of them have any particular historical interest, Mr. Messier? Sure, there is one here not far from here, about 15 feet from here. That one just across the way, eh? That's across the way, yes. This building was built in 1823. And if I remember well, if I remind well, this uh, building was one occupied, once occupied by the Hudson Bay Company. Well, that is a very interesting fact. One, I imagine that'll be one of the first buildings they ever occupied in Canada, It would it? It would be, yes. I see. Well, now to get back to the subject of these youngsters who are all around us again, uh, I know that asking for pennies is the thing that they specialize in, and I imagine most of those pennies finally end up in your store, don't they? Sometimes they do. I see. <laughs> well, now, do you know if the kiddies can uh, sing or anything like that? Oh, sure they can sing. Well, look, I wonder if you'd talk to them. I can't speak enough French, I'm afraid. But you talk to them, ask them if they'll sing for us right now, and we'll see if we can find some pennies to give them afterwards, eh? All right, I'll try. Okay. Chante vous autres, les gars, though. 
Well, that's just fine. We'd like to stay and hear some more from the youngsters here in Sulacap, but time's up and we're going to have to be in our way. But if any time you feel that you'd like to step back out of the 20th century into a slice of Quebec City as it was almost two centuries ago, just drop down and see Sulacap, this oldest, narrowest street in Quebec's oldest city, which hasn't changed much, we imagine, since the days of Wolfe and Montcalm. We think you'll really enjoy the experience. But one thing, be sure you're well supplied with pennies, or else the youngsters will see to it that your journey through Sulacap is anything but a peaceful one. And so now, I think we have to say au revoir and good night from Sulacap in Old Quebec. Boulevard, Montreal North. And thank you, Mrs. Lawson. You will receive your prize of $10 within the next few days. Have you a Canadian oddity to contribute? Something unusual that the Canadian Snapshots audience would be interested to hear about? Something that would be suitable as an actuality for our program? If you have, write into the Special Events Department of the CBC giving full particulars of your Canadian oddity. A prize of $10 is awarded each week to the person whose suggestion is used. These suggestions should be along the believe-it-or-not line and must be capable of being described in an actuality broadcast. There are numerous oddities of this kind in Canada, but Canadian snapshots would like their suggestion to originate with you, its radio audience. The following oddities have already won prizes. A farm within the city of Montreal. A frost-proof garden in Winnipeg. The skim milk rink at Port Arthur and the narrowest street in Canada in Quebec described for you in tonight's broadcast. In case of two or more similar suggestions on the same subject, the prize-winning letter will be judged to be that first received. Address your letters to the CBC Special Events Department, 341 Church Street, Toronto. time, Canada is not neglecting her welcome to visitors. But the war is just my difficulty. I was seriously thinking of visiting Canada this year, but maybe I'll have trouble with the Canadian immigration officials getting in. Well, madam, just put those fears to rest. You will not find the procedure of immigration changed since the outbreak of war, as relating to citizens of the United States. But what about visas and things? Surely it's not as easy as all that. Visas are not necessary, and it is as easy as all that. The friendly portals of Canada are open, as always, to her visitors. Canadian Snapshots has been produced in Toronto. The orchestra, featuring music by a Canadian composer, was directed by Samuel Hersenhorn. Another volume of Canadian Snapshots will be heard next week at the same time.
CBC Radio Canada. This is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The CBC presents Canadian Snapshots. Canada, its romance, its color, its good humor, and its absorbing interest, caught by the lens of the radio camera as it sweeps once more across the nation's vast panorama. Music also from the pen of one of Canada's native composers. Snapshot number one. A scene on a train just after crossing into Canada by way of Niagara Falls. Tickets? Tickets, please. Here you are, conductor. Thank you. Uh, Toronto, eh? That's right. First trip to Canada? Oh, no. I come up all the time on business. After stopping off in Toronto, I'm going up to the Muskoka Lakes for a few days. Well, skiing, I suppose. Oh, yes, sir. Good place for sports, especially this time of the year. Well, it's good at any time of the year. The swellest spot for swimming, too. <laughs> well, I have a summer cottage there, so I ought to know. Well, I hope you have a good time. Well, I'm sure I will. Thanks, conductor. Take it. Take it. mine. Thank you. Hmm, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. You've certainly got a long trip ahead of you. Uh-huh. Been out to the coast before? Well, not since I was a girl. But I've had such lovely memories of British Columbia, I've always wanted to see it again. This is the first vacation I've managed to get in five years, and I'm celebrating by going right across the continent. Well, you won't be disappointed. You'll see some grand scenery on the way out there. Vancouver's a great city. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I'm from B.C. myself, and I wish I was there right now. Breathing in that mild Pacific air. Take your choice in Canada. From east to west, winter or summer, all parts of this widespread country will provide enjoyment to the visitor who travels there. Snapshot number two. A picture that at first sight looks like a double exposure. A visitor comes to Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. Jesse and I are certainly glad you've come to stay with us in Glace Bay. <laughs> Especially seeing as how you're our favorite sister. <laughs> we, we haven't much to show you here. Uh, nothing like you'd find in a big city, but uh, we've a mighty fine transatlantic wireless station. And, uh, of course, our coal mines. The transatlantic wireless station? Yes. Well, that's something I'm not going to miss. Oh, lots of visitors go to see it. Mighty interesting, too. That's where Marconi sent the first wireless message from the North American continent to Europe. Oh? We'll take you there tomorrow. Oh, thanks, George. 
And how about arranging to have me taken down one of the mines? Right. I've never been underground in my life except in railway tunnels and city subways. <laughs> underground, eh? Mm-hmm. How about under the sea? Have you ever gone down the submarine? <laughs> Hardly, George. <laughs> only you men can get a break like that. I've only been underwater as far as I could dive. Then here's your chance to go really below the sea. What do you mean, George? You're not going to take me down in the submarine, are you? <laughs> not at all, but... You asked to go down one of the coal mines, didn't you? Yes. Well, if I can get permission for you to go down one particular mine I know of, you'll not only be going underground, but under the sea as well. Perhaps that sounds like a paradox, but the entrance shaft of the famous coal mine, Dominion 1B, at Glace Bay on Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, is only 30 yards from the sea. Most of the mine lies under the Atlantic Ocean, with the working face eight miles offshore. It's a fact. Snapshot number three. Music from tonight's Canadian composer. Mr. Lawrence Goodwill, young 19-year-old Vancouver musician. Mr. Goodwill is last year's winner of the scholarship awarded annually by the Canadian Performing Rights Society, which entitles the winner to a year's study at the Toronto Conservatory of Music. Tonight we shall hear one of his compositions originally written for piano and especially orchestrated for Canadian snapshots. March by Lawrence Goodwill. Played by the orchestra under the direction of Samuel Hersenhorn.
have just heard March, written by Lawrence Goodwill, tonight's representative of Canadian composers. Snapshot number four. One of the romantic regions of the continent, the Caribou, the vast inland territory of British Columbia. To this great area have flocked all types of men. Men seeking gold, men seeking furs, and men merely following the crowd. And after them, the hardy settler seeking a home and a stable living. Eighteen sixty-three, the days of the gold rush to British Columbia. The great caribou wagon road along the precipices of the Fraser River Canyon has just been completed. Two prospectors from California are making their way along it into the interior with a train of pack mules. Jag Nabadalik, this here's a gold darnest country to get into I ever did see. Oh, I don't know. Well, we've been traveling for nigh on three weeks now. You know, Maybe know. we'll be able to pack this grubber's furs the Thompson River, but how in tarnation will we ever get the pay dirt out? By sassafras, I'm all done in already. Well, I don't know, partner. We gotta wait till we strike it, that's all. Uh, <laughs> you should have tried to get in before Governor Douglas built this caribou load. Bad, yes, eh? Oh, bad. Yeah, it certainly was. You see, I was here in 58 when the first rush started. Yeah. Yep. There weren't a roadhouse in sight anywhere along the way to stop at. Yeah. Not a one. No, we passed many a poor devil. Yep. Frozen stiff they were. Right beside the trail. Was, eh? Yep. Yeah, even a corpse would be a change. We ain't passed a house or a living soul all day. These cussed mules is driving me plumb crazy. Creeping along like they was going to a funeral, they Yeah, be. I know, I know. They're certainly slow, partner, but they they get you there. you got to admit that. They get you there. Yeah, sooner or later. They, yep, yeah, they're sure-footed along these here narrow roads, and you can hitch plenty of weight on them, too. Yep, plenty of weight. 400 pounds on some of them. Yep, this ain't no country for horses, you know. Hey, best be careful now, partner. Another 100 yards ahead there. We'll be going around that bend in front of us. Yeah, eh? I see it. I got my eyes open. That's fine. I'm watching, Alec. Hey, hey, sweet spirits of lighter. What's the matter? Holy smokes. What's the matter? By cracky partner, am I seeing things? What you, where, where? What's that clear-looking animal ahead of us there? Coming around animal? the road with a hump on its back. Where, where? I don't see it. Where, where? It's certainly queer-looking. Look. Where, where? Oh, oh. Yeah, I see it. Why, it looks like a, like an animal I saw once in a storybook. They, I think they, yeah, they, they use them on the deserts in Africa. Uh, a camel. Yeah, they, that's what it is, a camel. Sure as my name's Alec Brown's yeah, camel. Sure is fantastic. Hey, maybe, maybe they, maybe they live here, too, huh? Hey, you get a whiff of that there. That smell? Sure do. Can't translation. Can't Sure is. Hey, look out! Look out! Stop! 
The mules just turn them back. The wolf. Oh, yeah. They're breaking loose. Hold them, Joe. Hold them. Hold them. Get away from me. Strange story of the early days of British Columbia. 21 camels imported to pack goods into the gold mining regions of British Columbia. These camels, whose odor caused panic to other pack animals, were turned loose and remained a terror alike to horses and mules who encountered them. The last of these odd animals survived as long as 1905. It's a fact! Snapshot number five. Sent to us by Miss Eleanor Henry, a little nine-year-old girl of Hamilton, Ontario. Canada is the home of many natural oddities, some of which have already been presented by Canadian snapshots. The magnetic hill near Moncton, New Brunswick, where the illusion is created of being at the foot of the hill when one is really at the top. The reversing falls of the St. John River, also in New Brunswick. Rapids formed by the narrow mouth of the river. At low tide, flowing toward the ocean... At high tide, flowing inland. Canadian Snapshots now brings you another oddity. The Burning Springs at Niagara Falls, Ontario. Tonight, we take you there where the Special Events Department will explain all about it. So now, over to Niagara Falls. Good evening, Canada. I am speaking to you from under the Falls View Observation Tower, overlooking the Niagara Cataract at Niagara Falls, Canada. The Falls View Observation Tower is a large building with a glassed-in promenade on the roof from which thousands watch one of the world's seven wonders. But though it is an awe-inspiring sight from here, it is not with old Niagara that we are concerned tonight. Instead, with something beneath this very observation tower. After you enter in the front door of the building, directly to the right is another door on which is lettering, which reads, The Old Burning Spring. I am standing in front of this door, and beside me at the moment is Mr. Martin Duran, who acts as guide to the many visitors who come to hear and see proven this old Indian legend of the water that burns. In just a moment, I'm going to ask Mr. Duran to take me through that door. But just before we carry on, I'd like to tell you the story of the Burning Spring. The old Burning Spring is said to have been discovered by the Indians nearly 200 years ago. How the Indians discovered that the water burned is very interesting indeed. The youngest chief of the Chippewa tribe at that time was Sparkling Water, a boy of 17 summers who one day, accompanied by a band of warriors, went afar on a hunting expedition. He returned to camp with his spoils, among which was a bull moose, weighing about 600 pounds. It was during a grand celebration in honor of his unusual feat that the medicine men, while striking flints together to ignite the faggots, accidentally caused the spark to fly into the spring, setting fire to the water and causing a great flame. When the Indians saw this, they were very much alarmed and afraid, believing a curse had been pronounced upon them, and fled in terror toward Queenston. The whole tribe had traveled some considerable distance before their medicine men could induce them to return and worship the burning spring as a god of fire. As time advanced, the Indians were driven in the background, and the white man found his way to the shores of old Niagara, and history tells us that the old burning spring was put on exhibition. And today, it is here, right through this door, produced as nearly as possible like the old Indian legend. Now, have I got that pretty straight, Mr. Guron? Yes, you have. All right. Let's go through the door. Going through, we find ourselves in a small, dimly lit circular chamber with a cement floor. In the center of the floor, there is a cement-lined pit or well 
about five feet deep and four feet in diameter. And now, let's look down the well. Hmm, water. About a foot of sparkling, crystal-clear water. Well, so far, it's just an ordinary-looking spring, with one exception. Sticking straight up out of the hole in the center of the bottom of the well, there is a length of pipe, just ordinary pipe that might carry the gas to your gas stove. On the pipe, about six inches from the top, which is about level with my eyes, is a tap, which also might belong to your gas stove. All right now, Mr. Gurren, why do they call this the burning spring? Because it actually burns. Well, uh, is this one of its off nights, or just won't it burn for strangers? No, I'll show you by taking the pipe out of the crevice of the rock. Now, you see what happens? I certainly do see what happens, and you, ladies and gentlemen, can probably hear the water of the spring come bubbling and surging up from the hole in the bottom of the pool. But I'm sorry, Mr. Gurren, and I don't want to appear to be a stickler on one point, but it's still not burning. All right, and now I will show you. By taking a taper and placing it close to the surface of the water, I will now ignite the water. And there it goes. The entire surface of the water has burst into the flames, rising almost to the top of the pit itself. And so the burning spring does burn. I say, this is all right. It's the warmest I've been all day. Now, Mr. Gillen, that we've got it going uh, nicely, I hate to bring this up, but how do you put it out? Just by placing this pipe back into the crevice of the rock. I see, and now Mr. Guren is trying to place the pipe back. And there it goes, putting out the fire and uh, stopping the flow of water. What would happen if you opened the tap on top of the pipe, Mr. Guren? Just this. Is that gas? It is. Can you light it? Yes, I can. And so he did. The gas now is escaping as flame, blue and white flame, looking exactly like a gas jet. The peculiar thing about this burning spring is that the blue flame is the coldest part of the fire. All the fire and the heat is contained in the white part of the flame. You can put your hand or a piece of cloth through this blue flame and it will not burn or mark you in any possible way. And that is the reason for it being put on exhibition. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mr. Martin Guren, for this visit to Canada's own burning spring. And this concludes, ladies and gentlemen, one half of snapshot number five from Niagara Falls. To complete the exposure, we take you now to Hamilton, Ontario. Good evening. Possibly you're wondering why snapshot number five is in two parts tonight. But as regular listeners know, we have offered for some time on this program a $10 prize for oddities set in and used on the program. Now, the winner of tonight's story of the Burning Springs at Niagara Falls, Ontario, sent in a little script on child stationery with a picture of a little dog imprinted on the top. The script was printed with lead pencil, and when it came across the desk in Toronto, we were struck by its wording, inasmuch as it was a complete, condensed, dramatized script of the spring at Niagara. After a decision, we figured out the young lady who sent it in must be possibly seven, eight, or possibly 11 years of age. And it brought home the fact that radio, although still young, has taken hold of the extent that the little people in this world of ours are beginning to understand its operation. So therefore tonight, sitting here in Hamilton with me is a little lady whose name is Eleanor Henry. 
And Eleanor tells me she's eight years of age. Now, Eleanor and I are going to try and reenact what she thought would explain the burning springs in her little script, which Daddy or Mother Henry didn't even know she was mailing to us. So we've got this little script here, and Eleanor and I are going to read the parts. And Eleanor was just clever enough to put in this script a boy and his father rather than the girl. So, Elmer, you let's just read this little script here. If we make a noise with the paper, why, that isn't going to mind either. So I'll, I'll start up here at the top here now. Boy with his father going around the pool, etc., at Niagara Falls, and uh, he comes to the Burning Springs. What do you call this? Why, this is the Burning Springs. Why did they call it that? Well, that's because the water comes up and burns if you strike a match. Have you got a match? Mm-hmm, I have. Will you strike it? Yep, just a minute. There we are now. It's starting to burn. That's fine. And this was signed, yours sincerely, Eleanor Henry. Now, Eleanor, let's you and I talk just for a minute or two, eh? What what gave you the idea of sending in the story of the burning spring? I read a boat from a paper my daddy brought home. A paper your daddy brought home. Well, now, where did you get the idea of writing it out like, well, like a dramatic script? From the reader we use at school, it shows how to make a play from some stories in the book. Well, that's just fine. Now, now will you tell me what grades you're in at school? I'm in grade four. Mm-hmm. And what do you like to do best? I like art the best. I like to print with watercolors. You like art and you like to paint with watercolors. Well, now, what else do you do when you're not in school, Eleanor? I practice the piano and listen to my radio in my room and play outside. You listen to your radio in your room. Is it a little wee radio or is it a big radio? A little wee one. A little wee one. How big? Oh, about... Oh, little wee one, eh? Well, now, let's see. What kind of programs do you like to listen to? I like stories and band music. Stories and band music. Do you like loud bands or soft bands? Oh, I like soft bands. Soft bands, eh? Is there anyone in Canada that you'd like to say hello to tonight? I would like to say hello to Maurice Rillo Miller, who lives in Montreal. Do you suppose, you know, Montreal is a way down, let me see. Oh, we have to go through Toronto and Kingston, a way down that way. Maybe you better say hello again a little louder, eh? I would like to say hello to Maurice Miller, who lives in Montreal. Maurice Miller, who lives in Montreal. Well, Eleanor, I've got an envelope here. And in this envelope, I'm going to open it up. I want to give you something. Well, we see if I can get it out of here now. That's the next thing. See what this says? What's that say right there? Does that say your name? Who's that? Is that Eleanor Henry? And where do you live? On 96 Paisley Avenue North. In Hamilton, eh? And it says $10. Will you take that from me? Thank you. And thank you very much for sending in your little script. Thanks very much. Now, I just want to take a few moments... They're left here at my disposal to thank listeners for the hundreds of encouraging letters and ideas which have been sent in regarding Canadian snapshots to our Toronto office. Many letters have been sent in and have mentioned the fact that they consider this their program. Well, audience, if that be your wish, most certainly we can make it just that by carefully constructing the program to your liking. In many instances, suggestions have been sent to us already that have been part of previous Canadian snapshot programs. Therefore, if you feel that your suggestion is being neglected, 
it may have appeared on a previous program, as I have mentioned. Then, too, we have received many letters with the same idea in mind. And naturally, to arrive at a decision as to who's to be the winner, we have taken a letter with the earliest postmark and will award the prize money on this basis. Now, a word to new listeners on this program. May I say that if you have an oddity in mind, which you think would be suitable as an actuality broadcast on this program, please write. Your suggestions, and I can assure you this is right from the bottom of my heart, are always appreciated. Because in Canadian snapshots, we've departed from the usual way of broadcasting. It's snapshot pictures, it's Canada. So if you've got an idea, and it's used in an actuality picture... We'll send you $10 for your trouble. And by the way, it's not necessary to write a script on the subject you have in mind. Just jot down the idea, and if feasible, we'll do the rest. And our sincere thanks again for all your letters. The address, by the way, to send your letters is the CBC Special Events Department, 341 Church Street, Toronto. And now, Sammy... Sammy Harrison Horn in Toronto. I was going to get Eleanor to uh, sort of start the music back there to finish off our program. But you've got a name that's unpronounceable to a child. I'm not kidding you, honestly. I've got a name in the same category, and I guess the only thing we can do is change our names to Smith, Brown, or something the little folks can handle. So, if you're all set with the music in Toronto, baton raised, you can lower it anytime. Thank you, Niagara Falls, and thank you, Hamilton, for a real double exposure picture brought to Canadian Snapshots. The gig of Canada's exhilarating winter season is now at its liveliest. For her winter visitors, there is ample opportunity everywhere to enjoy her snow-clad playground. But I'm too tied down to business this winter to take a holiday. With the children at school, I can't possibly get away at this time. If you are prevented from visiting Canada this winter, you may come instead this summer, and you'll find that Canada then is equally attractive as a summer vacation land. So plan ahead for a trip to Canada.
Canadian Snapshots has been produced in Toronto. The orchestra featuring music by a Canadian composer was directed by Samuel Hersenhorn. Another volume of Canadian Snapshots will be heard next week at the same time. Radio Canada, this is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The CBC presents Canadian Snapshots. Canada, it's romance. It's color, it's good humor, and it's absorbing interest caught in the lens of the radio camera as it sweeps once more across the nation's vast panorama. Music, too, by one of Canada's native composers. Snapshot number one, a view of Canada's winter season taken from a feminine angle. for you, Mr. Howard, and sign here. Oh, dear me, a telegram. Uh, uh, sign it, eh? Yeah, well, there you are, my boy. Thanks, sir. Yeah. I wonder what... Uh, uh, Jesse? Jesse, come here. It's a telegram. I'm coming. Well, there's nothing wrong, is there, Steve? Well, <laughs> it depends how you look at it. Your sister Sarah's coming to pay us a visit on Friday. Well, for goodness sake, <laughs> after all my invitations, Sarah's really coming to your <laughs> It sort of looks that way, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> What's that about Annie Sarah coming to see us? Oh, boy! Yes, Tom, and I want you to be on your very best behavior. And above all, keep your face and hands clean. Oh, why do I always have to be clean when visitors is here? Ain't visitors the same as other people? Never you mind. And don't go shouting around the house, scaring everybody out of their wits. Gee, I'm not shouting, Mom. See, you think Sarah would like to go coasting on the new slide our gang's built? Indeed she wouldn't. <laughs> she'd as soon be shot off on a rocket. We got to entertain her, ain't we? Maybe she'd like to go skating in the open-air rink or tobogganing or something. Gee, I got a swell idea. 
We'll get her a pair of skis and take her out skiing in the country, huh? Tom, understand your Aunt Sarah's a lady. Well, I see lots of ladies out tobogganing and skiing. Pretty snoozy, too, some of them. Yep, the (laughs) the boy's right, Jesse. Young girls sure look like humdingers in these new winter rigs. Yes, they do. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd like to see Sarah all dressed up, same as them, and going in for winter sports. Why, Steve Howard... Do you mean to insinuate that my sister's one of these modern tomboys? Gallivanting around on skates and skis and goodness knows what? Imagine Sarah in a parka and trousers. I think a law should be passed against women being allowed to wear such things. Fortunately for thousands of modern women, there are no such laws forbidding them taking part in sports and wearing the colorful and becoming costumes that each of these sports requires. Especially at this time of the year, Canada affords the opportunity for women to secure strenuous, health-giving outdoor exercise in her great out-of-doors. Canada invites women both at home and abroad to share in her list of many and varied winter pastimes. Snapshot number two. A photograph of old houses. Two visitors have come to the resort town of St. Andrews, New Brunswick. Well, Don, so this is St. Andrews where your ancestors came after the American Revolution. This is it, Doris. Disappointed? No, not exactly. But I expected it all to be very quaint and sort of ancient-looking. Well, it is, in spots. Then I haven't seen them. Our first day here, we spend in a large modern hotel. We play golf on a fine, up-to-date course. Oh, maybe your ancestors played golf on that course, too. (laughs) No, I'm afraid not, Doris. I suppose those loyalists were too busy building homes for themselves. Some of them were, but not all of them. Not all of them what? Building homes. Then what in the world were they doing? Chasing Indians? They didn't need to build homes. I suppose they just put up at a big hotel, the same as you and I. They didn't need to build them because they brought their houses with them. Don is right. The loyalists who left Castine in Maine after the American Revolution took apart many of their houses and transported them piece by piece in sailing vessels to St. Andrews, New Brunswick. Many of these old houses, with their weathered shingles and tiny windows made violet with age, are still to be seen in St. Andrews. It's a fact. Snapshot number three. Music from tonight's Canadian composer. The Toronto Conservatory of Music has numbered among its students many of Canada's distinguished musicians. Among these is Kenneth Meek, who now holds the position of director of music in one of Kingston's leading churches. This young composer has already written several distinguished major works, one of which is The Sweet, Darby, and Joan. The orchestra, under the direction of Samuel Hershenhorn, will now play two movements of this suite, Cradle Song and Jig, composed by Kenneth Meek.
And now, the jig. just heard two movements of the orchestral suite Darby and Joan by Kenneth Meek, Canadian composer. Snapshot number four. Two pictures of women engaged in a noble profession. The middle of the last century in the living room of the rectory of the Reverend John Smithhurst at Elora, Upper Canada. Reverend, look what the postal courier just brought you. A big box from the old country. This is indeed a surprise, Emily. Uh, go ahead and unfasten the rope. Yes, Mr. Smithist. Oh, my, but these knots is tied tight. There's a carving knife on the dresser. Uh, cut them with that. Thank you, sir. There it is, Reverend. A chest. Will I open it, sir? Oh, by all means. Oh, upon my word, it's a communion service. Oh, and a very beautiful one, too, Emily. Silver. Aye. Who in the world could have sent it to me? Oh, oh, here's some Latin engraved under one of the pieces. What does it say, Reverend? Uh, just a moment. Let me see. Uh, acting for someone else. Uh, Ebenezer Hall. Uh, Donet Hick gives this set of communion silver to the Reverend John Smithhurst. A very dear friend in, in grateful recognition of many kindnesses. Anno Domini, 1852. So, she remembered me after all. Who remembered, sir? Oh, 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 nobody you could have possibly heard of, Emily. Uh, just a young nurse. Uh, oh, uh, we were in love once. Oh, uh, sir. Uh, but, but her family was so opposed to the match, we, we parted, and I came out to Canada as a missionary. I'm uh, very sorry, sir. Mm, this is so like her. 
Oh, she has such a beautiful soul, Emily. Beautiful as her name. Florence Nightingale. Today, in St. John's Anglican Church, Elora, Ontario, you can still see this communion service sent by Florence Nightingale, who, two years later in the Crimean War, was to create the profession of war nursing. A little romantic incident linking Canada and the lady with a lamp. From the Crimean War to the present day, a young recruit of the RCAF has his first view of one of Canada's modern army nurses. What do you think of your first visit to Toronto since joining the Air Force? Oh, I think it's swell, Bill. Say, who's this good looker coming our way in the nurse's uniform? Now, how should I know? Boy, she's hey, certainly a good... What do you mean, pipe down? I said, come on, salute. S- what? Salute, will you? What do you mean? Good morning. Hey, what's the idea of shutting me up like that? Well, what do you mean by making me salute that dame? It seems, Jerry, there's a military regulation about saluting your superior officers, isn't there? Well, sure there is, but what's that got to do with saluting a nurse? Latin. It was an army nurse who saluted. Oh. There's 80 of them here in Toronto, and every one of them's a full-blown lieutenant and wears lieutenant's pips on her shoulders. Yes, it's a fact. The nursing sisters in Canada's fighting forces are all commissioned lieutenants of honorary rank. Tonight, Canadian Snapshots has arranged for you to hear further about these army nurses, and we have here in our studios Miss or should we say, Lieutenant Neal, who will now be interviewed for you by Reed Forsey of the Talks Department. As a matter of fact, if the military title is used, what we should say in this case is neither Miss nor Lieutenant, but Matron, because we are honored to have as our guest the Matron of the Toronto Military Hospital, Matron Agnes Neal herself. If we were in the hospital, we'd call her Matron. But in this brief interview, with her permission, we'll call her just Miss Neal. Now, Miss Neal... First, let's let's establish this fact, namely that the nursing sisters of the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps are all commissioned officers. That's quite true. The ranks are matron and nursing sister. The commission is an honorary one. And, of course, the uniforms are all the same? Yes, they are. Well, it's a very smart-looking uniform, Miss Neal. And while we're on the subject, will you describe the uniforms of the nursing sisters in the RCAMC? Many of our listeners haven't yet had the opportunity of seeing them, Now, for instance, what about the one you're wearing? Well, I happen to be wearing what we call our recreation suit. It's for informal wear, off-duty. It's a two-piece suit, navy blue woolen Norfolk jacket and skirt, with a light blue shirt and a navy blue necktie. The coat I was wearing when I came here is called a great coat. It's a navy blue melting cloth with a dull cherry-colored lining. Incidentally, navy blue and dull cherry are the colors of the RCAMC. The hat is navy blue felt, a sailor, worn with the brim up in the back and down in the front. Hmm. That was a very clear and concise explanation, Miss Neal. Now, what about your uniforms when on duty or for formal occasions? Uh, They're a lighter blue in color. The blue, I believe, is sax blue and, of course, different in style. The uniform we wear when on duty is cotton with a double-breasted tunic buttoning up to the shoulder and worn with a white-starched Eaton-style collar and cuffs. There are 12 brass buttons on the front of the tunic and more on the shoulder and sleeve. 
And with this, we wear white organdy veils tied around the head and off the face. Very becoming, too. And is that uniform used for both duty and dress? Yes, except that for formal wear, instead of cotton, the material is a light, soft wound, but the style is exactly the same. And you polish your own brass buttons? Yes, we certainly do, and our belt buckles, which reminds me, I forgot to mention our belts. We're very proud of them. They're wide brown leather. The buckles bear the lion and crown. The belt adds to the trimness of the uniform. Uh, Miss Neal, how are the nursing sisters of the RCAMC recruited? What are the requirements? I'll answer the last part of that question first. Briefly, the requirements are that a girl must be a registered nurse, registered in the province in which she is practicing, and a member of the Registered Nurses Association. Then she must be in, in Class A physical condition. Well, you're not Red Cross nurses, are you? No, we are not. Some are enrolled in the Red Cross. Now, that brings us to the recruiting of nursing sisters. In Toronto, those who were recruited were first individually interviewed. Then they went up for their medical board examination. After this, their papers were made out. Then there, there was a thorough x-ray examination. And lastly, when they had passed all requirements, they signed their papers. And do they swear the oath of allegiance? Yes. Each nursing sister is sworn to serve her king and country for the duration of the war. And so she becomes a nursing sister of the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps with the rank of nursing sister. Of course, she has a lot to learn then about military procedure and ethics, hasn't she? Yes, indeed. The nursing sisters attend lectures by the officers in the unit. Among un many other things, they have to learn the, uh, are the badges of rank of the, on the arms of the service. That in itself requires a lot of study, to say nothing of the many other details. I guess it would, Miss Neal. Now, what about their work? How many hours a day is each nursing sister on duty? Eight hours. And there are nursing sisters in military hospitals right across Canada, are there not? Yes, all governed by the same regulations. And all ready to go anywhere on very short notice? Yes, of course. They're in the RCAMC and ready to serve their king and country. And our good wishes go with them, wherever they go, Miss Neal, and with you, too. Please accept our sincere thanks for being our guest this evening. Snapshot number five. Now, another composition of Kenneth Meek. One of his songs, a setting of the famous 17th century lyric, There is a Lady Sweet and Kind, to be sung for you by William Morton, accompanied by the orchestra under Samuel Hersenhorn. There is a lady sweet and kind Was never face so pleased my mind I did but see her passing by and yet I love her, and yet I love her, till I die. Her gestures, motions, and her smile, her wit, her voice, my heart beguile, beguile my heart, I know not why, and 
was William Morton singing There is a Lady Sweet and Kind, the second of two compositions representing the work of Kenneth Meek, Canadian composer. Snapshot number six, one of Canada's firsts, where the first lollipops in Canada were made. The first chocolate factory in the Dominion was built at Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Tonight, the special events department has arranged for you to hear all about it. So now, come with us east to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. This is Dartmouth speaking to you. We're out here now on the site of the first chocolate factory in the Dominion of Canada. This factory shut down some years ago, and all that remains now is the great smokestack towering stark and gaunt into the cold winter sky. I have with me here tonight a man who is equipped to tell you more about this factory than possibly any other man around here. It's Mr. A.C. Pettipaw. His father worked for the Mott factory for quite a number of years. Just how long did he work for the Motts, Mr. Pettipaw? father worked for the Mott factory for over half a century, 50 years. That certainly is a long time to remain in the employ of any one firm. And he's still living. He's 84 years of age, and he's very active. Well, that's really quite something. You, you were telling me before that, well, as a boy, while your father was working for the Motts, this was more or less a playground for you. Well, now, I certainly envy any man who had a chocolate factory for a playground. Well, it was a great playground for me, I must say. Thirty-five years ago, I spent all my boyhood days here, and I spent a good bit more than my boyhood days. I spent all the time I could. I hauled wood from this place here. I took the um, odd bit of broken chocolate. And <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. I imagine any fellow would that works around a chocolate factory. And uh, I had a wonderful time. The scene, of course, tonight is quite different from what it was then, when we had a splendid factory uh, producing its finished products for all parts of the world. Well, now, that, the process of, of making that, I mean, uh, the, I mean, as a, any kid would think of chocolate bars, but the chocolate industry goes so much further than that. Just how did they, they get about making the chocolate in the first place? Well, in the first place, of course, they imported the... the uh, the bean, the Keiko bean, they called it, from uh, Mexico, from Java, and uh, all in the West Indies. And they came here, and then they roasted those beans. And uh, that's a very delicate operation. I well remember that. And as soon as the beans were roasted, they had to be quickly cooled and then uh, shelled. 
That would, I suppose, govern the taste of the finished product quite a bit. Very much so. It all depended upon that and the color and the taste in the connection with the uh, roasting of the beans. And uh, then, of course, if they intended to make uh, the famous uh, cocoa drink, why, they had to take the the butter out out of the beans, and that was done by hydraulic presses. And uh, then that became a hard substance, a hardened, hardened, hardened cake. And that all broke up and was the regular chocolate. And, of course, they were making the regular chocolate. They kept the cocoa butter. Uh, they didn't take the cocoa butter from that. That was for, for eating chocolate. That was for eating chocolate. But the, the cocoa then was more or less a, a byproduct of it, wasn't it? Was it was sort of a byproduct, but still it was one that it entered into all markets of the world. It was a wonderful... They had a wonderful market for that. Well, it seems it does seem rather odd that the famous Mott's breakfast cocoa should have been uh, actually a byproduct of the chocolate industry. Well, it uh, it was perhaps not a, insofar as uh, compensation was concerned. It was one of the big parts of the industry. Of course, the chocolate making was a, a very important branch, perhaps a major branch of it. Yes, I imagine so. Well, now. How about uh, chocolate bars? Did they uh, they use that? Well, I think our time is up now. We'll return you to Toronto. Perhaps you, too, know of a Canadian oddity, something decidedly unusual or strange in the Canadian scene. Something that would make a good subject for the actuality portion of Canadian Snapshots. If you do, write into the special events department of the CBC, giving full particulars of your Canadian oddity. The special events department will send a crisp $10 bill to anyone whose suggestion is used. Bear in mind, it must be something along the believe it or not line, and it must be capable of being described in an actuality broadcast. To give you an idea of what is wanted, here are a few that have been used. A farm in the city of Montreal, the smallest business block in Canada, the frost-proof garden at Winnipeg, and the first candy factory in Canada described in tonight's broadcast. In case of two or more similar suggestions being sent in on the same subject, the prize-winning letter will be judged to be the first received. Address your letters to the CBC Special Events Department, 341 Church Street, Toronto.
you a holiday in mind this year which you would like to spend somewhere in Canada? I thought of going to the Maritime Provinces and spending my summer in one of those nice, quiet places beside the sea. I was planning a hunting and fishing trip to northern Ontario. And from what I'm told, nothing but wild horses is going to stop me. And nothing is going to stop me either. All my life I've wanted to take a vacation in the Rockies. And this year, I'm taking it. From the Atlantic to the Pacific... Canada expects this year the greatest volume of tourist trade in her whole history. Canadian Snapshots has been produced in Toronto. The orchestra, featuring music by a Canadian composer, was directed by Samuel Hersenhorn. Another volume of Canadian Snapshots will be heard next week at the same time. See Radio Canada, this is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation.